Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pensions and Investments, where my guests and I will bring you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all things related to your investment portfolio and shareholder recoveries. I am a Tara Tversky securities class action attorney in New York City. And I'm here today speaking with Panayotos Lamprakotis. Panayotis is a portfolio manager for the Texas Employees Retirement System, a $35 billion public fund here in the U.S., where Panayotis is part of a team of managers within the system. Prior to arriving at Texas ERS, Panayotis worked at a multi-billion dollar Tokyo-based hedge fund where he worked with institutional clients in Japan. Welcome, Panayotis, to my show. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, I find you a really interesting person on a number of levels, both personally and professionally. And also, I think like the work that you've done and continue to do on behalf of the Texas retirement system is really cutting edge in a lot of ways. And I think many other public funds can really benefit from understanding some of the investment strategies that you've employed. So I'd like to like jump right in. But let's go back to the beginning first. So you came to Texas employees six years ago. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So let's talk about your name, which is such a great name. It's quite unique. Tell us, first of all, where are you from? I was actually uh, born in Athens, Greece, and uh, I lived in Greece till the age of 13. Uh, And actually, my first name, uh, I, I take after my grandfather on my father's side. And anecdotally, uh, although I always say that everybody, including English speaking people, speak Greek without they, them knowing it, uh, my name is after uh, the Virgin Mary, which means very holy. Uh, just don't hold me to that. Uh, that's just, that's just I my love name. that though. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I really, I really love that. Okay. So moving fast forward a little, um, you come to America. And I think if I recall, you had said that you actually started off in the Northeast or thereabouts and then made your way down South. Correct. I, uh, when I first moved to the U.S., my, um, my family w- was in Massachusetts, and that's where I first settled and finished uh, middle school, high school, and undergraduate studies in Massachusetts. I uh, lived in the central part of Massachusetts, just north of a town a city called Worcester, Mass., I uh, finished my undergrad studies at Boston College, and after a couple of years of accounting work for State Street Global Advisors and realizing that accounting wasn't my long-term calling nor interest or passion, I had the opportunity to uh, move to Chicago and work uh, within the alternatives industry at Grosvenor Capital Management. Uh, the pioneer of the fund of funds uh, industry in a way. And uh, luckily I had a friend of mine who had joined the firm a couple of years uh, prior to myself. Uh, And as is in sometimes in life, an introduction could be a key uh, to to getting through a door. And that was the case for myself, but it was also the introduction to something new, uh, something I wasn't really familiar with at the time, which was alternative investing in hedge funds. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, it was a, a door, a very opportune door that opened up and it has become my passion uh, since then. Wow, that's really nice. And then uh, it's interesting. So you worked in the private sector, which I find a lot of um, 
people who are now in the public sector have really started in the private sector. But what was the most unique um, thing that you found working and transitioning from private to public sector? Um, well, each each side has its challenges. Uh, on the private side, uh, you are most likely for profit, uh, focusing on the bottom line, focusing on margins, dealing with clients, and that in itself uh, brings certain stresses, uh, objectives, and constraints in mind. Uh, the public sector, obviously, it's not for profit, uh, but I like to think that I do have clients, and those clients are the trust beneficiaries. That's who we ultimately serve. Uh, and it's a different business model with its own uh, ways of functioning, its own objectives and constraints. And you simply have to be able to recognize that fact, be able to adjust to that fact and work with those confines. But at the end of the day, what I have found switching from the private to public sector is that the spirit of my job and my the goal of my job um, is pretty much the same, honestly. Uh, and I haven't worked uh, an endowment or a family office or a private uh, pension plan, but I have a feeling having spoken to a lot of individuals from those business models, and I tend to call them business models, uh, they too do pretty much uh, everything that we do, um, slightly different depending on the objectives, uh, but overall the spirit of the job, the intent of the job remains the same. I think that's true. I think, um, you know, as an attorney, I always say no matter who I'm representing, whether it's a private investor or a public fund, that you have to just remember that behind every fund are people. And I think that when you understand that, and I think it's probably the same in the public sector, just understanding that there are people behind all of these, um, all this money. And you, you need to view the, that money in, with a lens toward that. And I think then everything it becomes easier. So um, I think that's a little bit of what you're saying. Yeah, I, th I think it really comes down to understanding your fiduciary duty if you really want to get technical. Uh, in the public domain, our fiduciary duty is to do well by our beneficiaries and manage the capital as if it was our own. Uh, which is pretty much the definition of fiduciary. Uh, but we also, I also had the same mentality on the private side when dealing with institutional clients. I had in mind that it wasn't our capital. Uh, they were uh, bestowing that stewardship onto us with the goal of delivering improved returns. And ultimately that capital was returned to their business to, to be uh, served and to be expensed at, at a way of their choosing. And hopefully it was, making somebody's life better or improving a project, whatever the case may be. Right. I think that's exactly what, what our goals, our mutual goals have to be. So now you're working on a, a hedge fund team within the Texas ERS, correct? Correct. I'm, so tell um, me, how did that get started? Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, myself, I'm one of five team members within the overall trust and uh, our primary objective is to work on what we call our absolute return portfolio. Uh, that was put together uh, August of 2012, and it was a result of the overall pension plan migrating from your traditional 60-40 model, 60% equities, 40% fixed income, to something more diversified to include uh, other uh, quote-unquote asset classes. Um, I say quote unquote, because I, I don't view hedge funds necessarily as asset classes, more so uh, as investment conduits. 
But nonetheless, uh, regardless of the nomenclature, the objective of the portfolio uh, was created and remains today to serve as a risk mitigator to the overall trust. So in layman's terms, when the rest of the trust zigs, hopefully we zag. And more importantly, we hopefully uh, are able to preserve capital during volatile times on the downside. Uh, that was the, the purpose of the uh, overall obsolete return portfolio. Um, since uh, you and I last spoke, uh, given the tailwind in the markets, our assets have grown from 29 billion to 35 billion. Oh, excellent. Uh, so right now, those uh, the hedge fund assets represent about 5% of overall uh, assets. Uh, as I mentioned, our, our primary objective is driven by uh, observing and managing risk. However, we do have a return objective, just like any other portfolio would, uh, which is 90-day rolling T-bills plus uh, 350. And secondly, we also have a, a newer program uh, that we created and launched in June of 18, uh, which we call ERS Launchpad. Uh, and that part of the program focuses more on emerging managers, uh, so smaller managers, and that has a different objective within the trust. Uh, the goal is to build a farm system uh, and hopefully build relationships early on uh, that hopefully flourish in, into more longer sustainable relationships uh, down the road in the future, assuming there is success uh, with those underlying managers. And the other caveat with that is that it's a economically based relationship, meaning we seek a revenue share uh, for all our investments for added uh, sources of return. Interesting. And how do you identify um, emerging managers? Well, the, the way we have structured our program uh, is in partnership form. So we announced a partnership uh, with PAMCO Prisma, uh, primarily because uh, PAMCO, uh, when it was a standalone firm prior to its merger with KKR Prisma, uh, had been uh, a longstanding investor within the emerging, emerging manager space. Uh, they had uh, over 20 years experience investing in emerging managers. They have had a global footprint, global experience, but also have the internal knowledge from an operational risk management legal perspective to set up and oversee emerging managers. And so what we really wanted to do was to find a partner uh, that had that knowledge uh, de facto, that would expand our bandwidth. Uh, again, we're a small team located in the middle of Texas. Uh, we wanted to expand that bandwidth of reach and know-how uh, by working closely with colleagues uh, that could be uh, present all over the world or have experience of finding managers all over the world. Uh, could help us from the operational and investment due diligence uh, setup of uh, emerging managers and continual uh, oversight after investment. Uh, but we also wanted to share uh, on the investment risk as well. We wanted to better align ourselves, not only with underlying GPs and managers, but with also seeders that simply didn't provide the know-how, but also provided the capital and, you know, in, in simple terms, uh, put, put the money where their mouth is. If they supported a manager, uh, invest alongside with us, be true partners, share in, in the, on the risks, uh, and hopefully build a long-term relationship. So that was the, the idea of the, the construct and the structure uh, that I tried to put together. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Texas ERS, for anyone who knows anything about public funds, you're, you're one of the, um, you know, medium to larger funds out there in the U.S. And yet there's something really nice about what you're saying is that in this large place with so many employees, you are actually working in a small unit of five. And I'm sure that that really goes a long way, right? With the work that you do and the team that you have, would you say? Um, the the word that I would think of when it comes to t- team of five, 35 billion trust assets, uh, an investment universe that's global in nature, uh, as is the, the hedge fund industry, is efficiency. Um, we need to be efficient. Uh, obviously, we get help by working with consultants, or creating outside partnerships like the one that I just alluded to. Um, the, within the five individuals, I would say we have uh, two more on the junior side, but are, are, are up and coming. And one day they'll become more senior investment professionals. Um, so at the end of the day, we really have to be efficient with our time. We have to be efficient as we uh, when we source. Uh, we have to be efficient where we want to place our energy and time and efforts in further increased due diligence uh, and also maintain our current relationships, which is part of our responsibilities. We're not a invest and forget uh, type of team. We stay in close contact with our under, underlying investments. Uh, those right now total all in roughly 20 or so. And we have monthly updates, monthly conversations to just to make sure that uh, we're up to speed on the organization. We're up to speed with the underlying portfolios. We get context and insight on anything that's going on with the underlying portfolios, uh, the markets themselves, opportunities the teams might be seeing, and translate that not only in terms of potential new investment ideas, but just as importantly, within the structure of a trust, within the structure of a model that has a board and other stakeholders, we need to provide that information and translate that in communication and be communicative as to what's going on with our underlying investments. So that's interesting um, that you say communication. Are you regularly meeting with the uh, larger board members to update them as to what's going on within your team? Uh, the way we are structured, we do have a, a, a board that meets quarterly. Uh, our team presents uh, once a year. It so happens to be August, uh, which is uh, our fiscal year end. So we are presenting uh, next week uh, as we speak. Uh, but we also have an internal investment committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and that committee uh, approves all investment ideas. So we try to be more efficient instead of presenting uh, every investment idea, not just ourselves, because we have a private equity team, real estate team infrastructure, VC, and so instead of waiting for investment approvals uh, once a quarter, we have an internal investment committee uh, that approves those investments. Uh, It does include a board member. uh, That way there is communication between the investment committee and the overall board. Uh, But also it's the job of our CIO and other internal stakeholders to be in constant communication with our board members when certain concerns come up, certain issues, or certain market events that we need to address. Right, that makes sense. So um, would you say that your investments are socially conscious? Is that something that you're uh, wanting to do and and enacting? 
uh, we're, we're aware of, of where the markets are going, where we understand the increased uh, interest uh, in ESG uh, type of investments. Uh, right now, uh, at, at the trust level, we haven't adopted any official uh, ESG mandates. We haven't uh, adjusted or changed our investment policy to reflect uh, any new directions that we're taking uh, with ESG. Uh, I'm not saying that may not happen in the future. I'm not saying we may not get outside pressure or questions uh, regarding our philosophical stance when uh, it comes to ESG. Uh, I think overall, uh, we have seen an increased movement in interest in the space here in the U.S. Obviously, Europe uh, is light years ahead when it comes to these types of investments. Uh, but I think where we stand right now, and this is just my personal opinion, usually when there's a lot of noise and excitement about something, uh, as they say, you know, not everything that, that glitters is gold. Um, and so we're taking our time to really understand, number one, if there is value add to invest through the lens of any type of uh, environmental social governance prism. Uh, and second, how to balance uh, any proof of that type of investment uh, with our fiduciary duty, which is to meet uh, excess risk-adjusted returns. Uh, so we can't sacrifice returns uh, for the sake of simply checking a box and saying, well, now we're investing in something that's driven purely on ESG. Uh, we're still in, I would say, in the infant stage of educating ourselves and more importantly, making sure uh, there isn't any uh, greenwashing or whitewashing or whatever you want to call it, uh, meaning the, that a lot of the presentations and arguments that we hear are not just fluff, that they're, they're backed with statistical evidence that a different source and excess returns can be generated uh, through these types of investments. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I guess what you're saying also is that there has to be a balance, right? And, and I think that's true of everything we do. You have to balance all of the um, different um, information that you're getting and the sourcing that you're getting it from and um, the risks and the benefits and make decisions with that in mind and not just jump right in. So um, having said that, I'm, I'm gonna ask you a, a similar yet different question. Um, what do you consider and is there priority given to minority and women-owned fund managers in the context of what you're doing? The one area where we could work uh, with minorities or women-led businesses is through our uh, emerging manager program. Um, I think that a lot of, uh, I think that it, it's a natural area to look and work uh, with these subgroups. Um, the way that we have created and defined our emerging manager universe uh, by design we haven't made it that stringent and that explicit. It is implied that we are willing to work with everybody and anybody. Uh, and so instead of uh, saying to ourselves, well, we want X percent of our capital from this program devoted solely to, and you fill in the blank, uh, we want it to be as flexible as possible. We're willing to talk to anybody and anybody. All we require is somebody that is different is good at what they do, they're driven, and at the end of the day, generate attractive returns. And I really don't give much credence of what you look like, what your background is, as long as you meet that criteria and you're helping me, and therefore we're helping our beneficiaries, I'm willing to talk to you. 
That's great. So it sounds like there's inclusivity all around, but you really have to also know what you're doing. And that's really the key and the most important thing for, for funds, really, right? Because as you said, you're fiduciaries. And Absolutely. It, it um, starts and ends with that, I believe. It does. And you know, it, we can't make it uh, you know, a, a charity. We can't just say, well, I'm going right. to invest with somebody simply because they are a minority woman-led uh, uh, business. Uh, you have to be able to perform and execute the way that you stated you would, and you have to prove it to us. And we need to feel comfortable that we can work with you. Uh, and it becomes hopefully a win-win situation. You're raising capital and fulfilling your dream of managing a portfolio, building a business. And we're hopefully meeting our fiduciary duties of picking good managers that contribute positively to the overall return target. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so tell me a little bit, Panayotis, about your uh, stint in uh, the with the Tokyo um, firm and the institutional clients in Japan. Is there a vastly different culture than there is here in the U.S., I imagine, right? So what was it like working in that? Yeah, when, uh, <clears throat> when I joined the firm, um, I was relatively younger, or at least much younger uh, man. Uh, I think I was 25 at that time, if my math is still correct. And it was a wonderful experience on two main fronts. One, the business itself uh, was still small and growing. And I, I believe at that time I was maybe the third hire for the firm's uh, Chicago office. And it was a sink or swim situation. Um, the My previous uh, boss, who was a great mentor, actually used those terms when he hired me and said, you know, you can come, you can join, but you're, I'm throwing you in the deep end and see what you can learn and we'll talk in six months. And so I had to prove that I had the intellectual capacity to pick up things quickly, uh, but that really exposed me to a wide range of strategies uh, and migrated myself from being a, a specialist to a generalist. And so it was a great opportunity to really uh, expose myself to the wide spectrum of investment strategies around the world. In terms of the business model itself, uh, it only caters to uh, Japanese institutional clients. And yes, as you alluded to, there is a vastly big difference culturally when dealing uh, with any non-US client, but uh, Asia and Japan uh, are somewhat of a special region and special people. And so it was a bigger lesson about life, bigger lesson about professionalism, a bigger lesson about cultural differences. And the big lesson from there was the ability to uh, adjust uh, to your client who may have a different background, whether it's cultural, philosophical, or professional, uh, but also adapt uh, to a middle ground uh, to, to work together coming from different backgrounds. And, and still, don't forget, although I, I worked in a technically Asian headquartered company, I was the only Greek as well. So I was bringing a European slash U.S. background to the table. Um, but it was a great um, uh, life lesson of how to, to work with somebody who's different than you. And that's what the world is, different. Right. And, and so that was the, the, the great lesson uh, in, in life experience that, that I took out of that. You know, different and also alike, right? Wouldn't you say? Because I always say I travel so much for the work that I do and I meet people from all over the world and there are so many different people. But at the end of the day, I, I always find that there, we have so much in common. 
And if we can just focus on that, it's it's interesting. Absolutely. How much more, right? We have in common that we are. Than we Absolutely. Uh, just to give you a quick anecdote, uh, we often, um, you know, we socialize with a lot of our clients. And these were uh, high-level stakeholders in, in large banks and insurance companies. Uh, but it didn't matter to me whether I was with a junior person or a senior person. It didn't matter. Uh, you have to treat everybody the same. You know, today's junior person is tomorrow's CEO. Um, and so they'll remember how you treated yeah. them. Uh, but I remember one of my first trips over, I was uh, advised not to get too personal in a lot of the conversations because that's kind of the cultural no-no. Um, but over time, as I got to know a lot of these clients, the, those barriers you know, kind of came down. And at the other day, you know, it just turned out that we all talk and are concerned about the same issues. You know, I, I was talking to a father, I was talking to a brother, I was talking to somebody's uncle uh, who had an educational background, had personal concerns, personal aspirations. It wasn't that different. Um, it's just a matter of uh, context and perspective that you have to take into account and try and understand where somebody's point of view is coming from, what life experiences, education, are, are feeding that perspective and try and find a middle ground. Yeah, and always a little bit of time, I think, right? Which is what you said, you know, it, you can't always jump right in and say, oh, so tell me about your dad. <laughs> but yeah. if you get to know somebody over the course of time, that just breaks down the barrier and then- Well, that barrier is, uh, I, I think the word that probably best fits that is trust. You have yes. to build trust. Uh, they need to trust you as a person. Uh, they need to trust your ethical background, your your moral bearings. And with time, if you can prove to them that they can trust you and you can trust them, then those barriers thaw much easier. Right. And I think I, I think in business, certainly in what I do as a lawyer, I think I, I wonder, I'm I'm guessing it's the same for you. When you trust whoever it is that you're working with, when you can look into somebody's eyes and see their face and and really get a comfort level, then you say, okay, that's the person I wanna work with. Because there are a lot of managers that do the same thing, right? There are a lot of attorneys that do similar things, a little better, a little worse, but similar. But at the end of the day, when you can trust them, that's going to make the difference and make people take the leap of saying, yes, I'm gonna hire you or I'm gonna retain you. Yeah, I call that the coffee test. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I know there's a lot of discussions these days of how the pandemic has changed processes and whether or not Zoom is here to stay or replace certain steps. But at the end of the day, this is still a people's business. That's what I believe. Uh, I think that's part of uh, the reason why uh, all of us that are part of this business enjoy being part of this business is the fact that we get to meet so many different people from so many different backgrounds. Um, and yes, with time, you, you, I mean, I, I get to meet and have met thousands of people in my, in my career. Um, at the end of the day, what you really want to ask yourself is, do you want to go out and have a coffee with somebody and, and just talk? And if, you, if the answer is yes, that means you're building trust and there's something qualitative that you have picked up, that you have read between the lines, and hopefully you, you, you have that emotional IQ uh, to feel confident enough that, uh, and, or trust your gut, that you're going down the right path. And, and that's ultimately what we really want to get to is that trust level. Uh, you know, there's a, it's a qualitative uh, aspect, but that leads to a quantitative 
uh, risk, which is hundreds of millions of dollars in our case, that we're putting at risk. And, and we're handing over to somebody to take care of for us. Uh, and that's not a small amount uh, of how we uh, put that stamp of approval on that trust. Yes, no, I think that's well said. So let's talk for a minute. Um, Texas um, ERS, like many public funds, um, is underfunded. And I know recently in, in June of 2021, the Texas legislator took a major step to sh strengthen the state's fiscal future when it passed a major reform um, to the pension plan. So I'm wondering how does the underfunding issue inform what you do on your team in your emerging market hedge fund sector? Uh, it obviously uh, added a lot of importance to each additional capital that we put to work. Um, as you alluded to, we now have a let's call it technical backstop, uh, since eventually additional cash will come in. Uh, but we're always mindful, whether it's our individual portfolios at the trust level, uh, the math is pretty simple, or at least the levers attached to the math is really simple. Uh, one side of the ledger, you have your liabilities. You know what you have to pay in the long term. You know what you have to pay uh, every month uh, in, in paying those bills. And those values are going to go up or down depending on the assumed actuarial rate, but the amount is really not going to change unless they're the one-time benefits uh, paid out. So you know you really can't do much on that side, and there's also the legal or constitutional aspects to, 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 to keep in mind. On the other side, well, what is going to really drive returns? Putting aside any cash infusion you are left uh, with market returns. Uh, given rates where they are and will most likely stay low, uh, you can't really rely on uh, just a fixed income portion or carry of the book. Uh, and the only other mathematical possibilities you had to really close that funding gap is to either concentrate or leverage, um, perhaps through derivatives or simply borrow additional money. But neither of those situations would happen. One, it's not prudent from a portfolio management perspective. And two, uh, no real board or sane stakeholders would ever take that uh, approach, especially when it comes to $35 billion. So uh, we knew th those challenges and we, were aware, we are aware of those challenges. We never counted on any cash infusion because that's a political decision that's way above my pay grade or involvement. And so you, the only thing you can do is, again, try to eke out those excess returns uh, compared to your, your benchmark and try and meet those uh, actuarial targets, uh, whether it's seven a quarter, which is more or less still the average around the country and in my opinion, still elevated, or a bit sub 7%. Uh, and that's the, the only thing that we could do is try to, to get that uh, actuarial rate. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I interviewed um, Len Gilroy of the Reason Foundation, um, whose you know entire uh, life he has devoted to the underfundedness of public funds and and how to help them. And he has a great line that I love. He says, you know, you really can't invest your way out of the underfunded problem. Um, so you, as managers and on the team of the hedge fund or wherever you are situated in the public fund sector, I mean, you really 
you can do your best and you are doing your best, but at the end of the day, you're not going to invest your way out of it. Um, it's a, it's a whole other issue that has to be tackled, but I do see a lot of encouragement in the fact that there is this emerging market and there are these creative other avenues of investment that really will be helpful to public funds. I think over the course of time, it's not a, uh, a quick process. It's a slow process, but I think it's it's certainly working in the respect that it was intended to. Yeah, absolutely. Again, unless there's that cash infusion, unless the model itself changes, uh, and what I mean by that is that perhaps you take the investment arm of any pension plan, take it out, strip it out, and set it up as an independent business uh, where the business itself has the ability to uh, take different types of uh, risks or take in additional capital uh, from clients or create products, and then perhaps have the pension plan be a stakeholder, the only stakeholder in that business and receive dividend payments and equity appreciation, putting all those possibilities aside, which could be creative, maybe could be executed or not, uh, you're only really left with what the market opportunities are, are before you. Right. Uh, and in our situation, given that our investments are with external managers, uh, the best that we try to achieve is to pick the best managers that we believe can help us meet our investment objectives. So what do you think, Panayotis, are the greatest challenges that we face and that you face in the public pension world? Uh, I think at a high level, and again, uh, I'm not part of these uh, discussions and decisions, you alluded to the fact that a number of individuals have moved from the private sector to the uh, public sector and bringing uh, a lot of intellectual equity with them. Uh, and we saw that migration pick up post-financial crisis. Um, and it was a combination of years of experience being built within old fund of funds business models uh, I think a big challenge with a number of public pension plans are, are salaries. Um, you, know, you, you have to uh, attract, and, but also maintain talent. I think that will remain a challenge depending on which uh, way these business models evolve. Um, but in turn, you know, again, those are structural concerns that uh, I, I'm not involved with. Um, I can only observe from afar. Um, but from in terms of uh, an investment objective, uh, and, and again, speaking from the prism of alternative investments, given that that's what I'm involved with, uh, I think returns are going to be a big challenge. Uh, I alluded to the fact that it's my belief rates will remain low for a considerable amount of time. I know there's much talk of whether or not rates will rise in the near term or should they. That's irrelevant if you think of the fact that the base is zero to begin with. And if you account for inflation, the real rates are, are negative. So even if the Fed raises 25, 50, 75 bips, it's still low. Uh, and if the average pension plan has 10, 20% allocated to a carry type strategy, from a contribution point of view of me, the actuarial rate, it's negligible. So you have to find different sources of return which I think in one way bodes well for alternatives uh, because they have the ability to seek those different types of returns beyond, behind, beyond your beta. Uh, but the problem is alpha erosion, which has occurred for the better part of the last uh, 10 years. So overall returns will be challenging and challenged. 
um, again, is going to be this continuous uphill battle against central bank policies. Uh, I think that we now that a good portion of pension plans have migrated from your old 60-40 model to one that's more diverse these days, you're probably going to continue to have this debate of alpha versus beta, active versus passive. Uh, I'm of the belief that it's not an either-or argument. Uh, I think there's a time and place for both, but I think the debate will continue, especially if there's increased scrutiny on, on fees. Um, I think messaging remains uh, a challenge. Uh, we've talked about communication with internal and external stakeholders. I think one, one uh, poor job that uh, alternatives do in general, not just hedge funds, but even private equity and infrastructure, they don't market themselves very well. They don't communicate what exactly they do and how they do it and, and why it belongs in portfolios and why it makes sense. So I think messaging will still remain a challenge, uh, but it's vital to, to continue uh, providing information to all stakeholders that are part of pension plans. Um, and, and lastly, I think that the one exciting part, but will remain a challenge in terms of uh, accepting or adapting, we are living in a time of uh, an interesting time for a number of reasons, but we are seeing new frontiers of investing uh, open before us, whether it's digital assets, whether it's new types of products tied to digital assets, or new areas of the world to invest in. And as those open up, again, you'll probably have an initial rush of capital in search of yield, uh, in thirst of yield to invest. That usually is fertile ground for fraud or misvaluation. Yes, that's what I do. I know. <laughs> You're right. Um, and so once that dust settles, then you have to figure out, okay, is this truly a new frontier that can right. offer me something different? Right. And ultimately what, what really has staying power and, and that's, that that's going to determine a lot. And I think also you, you picked up an interesting point. Um, you know, I think the public pension world um, and the members have changed quite a bit. You know, there used to be this old school model that, you know, once a public employee, always a public employee and you were there for, you know, 20, 30 years, you got your pension and you moved on. Um, but now there's a much more in and out in the workforce and in the workforce, even in the public sector. I think that needs to be accounted for um, who our membership is and how we're best serving them. I, I think in terms of the board, um, what we have to have the foresight and understand what's coming isn't necessarily just the in and out. I, mean, I think you know, whether it's by, depends on the composition of the board. If you have members that are voted in, elected, every, every place is different. But what we have to really keep in mind is uh, the board that we're going to deal with or a board that's going to have fiduciary duties just 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be comprised of individuals that grew up in a completely different investment environment uh, than the board that we currently have today. And so if a board member today, average age being, let's say, 55, 60 or above, well, they had different experiences than the board members of tomorrow's 55, 60, 65 above. Uh, and they're going to bring different perspectives, different experiences and different tolerances. And so I think that will be interesting to see of uh, how that uh, intellectual composition uh, which will be different, 
if that's going to cause any major changes or not, and what those changes will be, and whether ultimately those changes are reflected in new and updated investment policies. Yeah, well, I think the world is changing in so many different ways as a parent to everyone, I think, and uh, funds are going to move with it. So um, we need to get ahead of it and um, always be ahead of it and not behind it. And to that, I thank you for coming on, Panayotis. It was really a pleasure having you on. You're really a wealth of information and knowledge and you're doing a great service to Texas ERS. So keep it up. Thank you on behalf of everyone. Thank you for having me.